You're listening to the Bottom Line Podcast, where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. Karen was living his best life, an adrenaline junkie who faced life head on from skiing the highest peaks in the world to surfing the waves. Life was blissful, full of happiness, running a successful snow business with his wife and family in Canada until that dreaded day when he was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Kieran, thank you so much for joining us today on the Bottom Line podcast and sharing your story. Yeah, that's a pleasure. It's great to be here. So like many people, your diagnosis came as a complete shock and you've written a book about your experience, which we'll come to a little later because I want to talk about that. Yep. What went through your mind and talk us through the initial diagnosis? Yeah, maybe I can even rewind back a year before that because um, that, that last few years we'd been living in Canada and we came back to Australia for a four-week holiday. And during that time, the Australian government mailed me the FIT test, which is the poo test that you do for colon cancer. And I um, you know, it sat on the shelf there and I walked past it and I made up a million excuses, you know, that, oh, we're in Canada, that won't be able to get the results back to us. And I'm super healthy. Uh, you know, I do lots of exercise. I've never drank. I've never never smoked, I, you know, eat salads all the day and, you know, and, and so in the end, I just, I didn't do it before I left, which is, you know, it was just such a huge mistake because perhaps that could have picked up that cancer, um, you know, maybe nine months or a year before, you know, the diagnosis that I got. Um, and in looking into it, I found that, you know, that's what 50 or 60% of people do. They just walk past that test and they'd never do it. And and I'm that stupid person. And if anybody's listening, please. I think that's harsh, Kieran. You're, not, know, the, you're not the silly person. It's just, it's yes, unfortunately, a lot of people do do it. I bet, please, you know, you know, I thought I was the world's healthiest person, but obviously, uh, you know, I had this cancer growing inside me. So, you know, don't think it can't happen to you. And just, just if you get that test, just do it right away. And if you don't have it, um, you can get them at the chemist or, you know, wherever. So they're very accessible. Yes, that we, we actually sell them on Bowel Cancer Australia's websites as well if you're not eligible. And that 30 or $40 is money well spent. Absolutely. And then, so then what happened, um, fast forward, you know, almost a year later, um, the pandemic happened and we raced out of Canada um, towards Australia in sort of the middle of March, late March, and we just made it before the borders closed. And, you know, I was really, really smug thinking, oh, yeah, this is awesome. You know, we'll get to wait out the pandemic and the best place in the world beside the beach. And, you know, um, it was great. But then a month later, I started to notice blood in my stool. And so, after, and then also the shape had changed a little bit. It was more almost like a crescent moon stool, which sounds kind of weird, but that's what it was. And after three days of, you know, blood in the stools, I, I thought, you know, I've got to go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor and then she said, oh, you've got to get a colonoscopy right away. And so I booked in with the local person here, uh, which is in a regional area, and that was going to be two or three weeks. But my mum said, no, 
you have to go and see the best person in Sydney. And I resisted, but my mum's pretty forceful. <laughs> um, so, so I booked in with this lady called Cherry Co in Sydney and she could do it the next week. So she did it and almost right away after inserting the um uh, the you know the camera she could see just in the sigmoid colon which is just just after the rectum she could see the big tumor that was causing the problem and then straight after that procedure um she came to the bed and said oh Kieran you've got probably stage 2 cancer maybe stage 3 at the worst case um, but then she did some more scans the next couple of days and we went into her office and said i oh, know you've got stage four bowel cancer we can see all these spots in the liver so so that that's how it happened and how how did you feel what what was going through your mind at that point obviously stage two stage three not great but workable but then being delivered stage four as we know that's not great news yeah that's right i, I was pretty calm at that sort of stage two stage three because i'd you know read a lot on google and i thought yeah i could get through this but then when she said I had stage four cancer, you know, it's just, uh, you know, I just cried in the office with uh, Paula, my wife, and, you know, it was really emotional. But the, the doctor was really good. Um, and she said, you know, that particularly in young people, if you can get rid of all the tumors in the liver and, uh, you know, really do a good job of clearing out all the cancer, then you've got about a 30% chance of a cure, even at that stage. So that gave me a lot of hope. And um, she booked in a big procedure for probably two weeks later, which involved two surgical teams, one doing the bowel and the lower stuff and another surgical team doing, you know, all the liver stuff. And so they went in and they worked on that for about 10 and a half hours. Oh, long, long surgery. That's right. Mm. And, you know, with the hope of, you know, sort of getting a cure. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. But, but it's a good theory. And if anybody's listening, you know, particularly the younger people, uh, you know, that are strong enough to handle a big surgery like that. How old were you, Kieran? Uh, 51. That would have been the first kit that was sitting there at the Correct. 50. Mm. Yeah. That's right. So then um, they put me on some chemo and we went sort of forward from there, basically. What what was then the initial treatment plan, obviously post-surgery? You've mentioned chemo. Yeah. So just talk us through briefly that treatment plan. Yeah, it, it was it was sort of interesting because I, I was doing sort of research on the side and I'd found somebody, you know, who said that it's really essential to get uh, you know, understand the whole genetics and and the mutations that are driving my particular cancer. But I found it really difficult to follow up on that. So, so I'll sort of circle back to that. Um, but in the traditional sense of the standard of care for the first line of treatment for colorectal cancer, it's basically to put everybody on Folfox. And that's the sort of standard that they just typically put everybody on there. And it has the best chance of working for most people. And that's why it's the standard first line of treatment. But it's pretty rough. It's brutal, isn't it? It can be that's quite right. brutal. Mm. So for me, I had lots of nausea, lots of diarrhea, and I lost the you know, the, the skin on my feet and I lost the feeling in my hands and my feet from this peripheral neuropathy. And, um, you know, I just had a, a whole lot of other symptoms like strange sort of, you know, 
nerve flexions and you know all sorts of weird stuff would happen so so for me that was really rough um that 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 treatment and and i think for most people it probably is did you have the full complement or did those um symptoms start happening early yeah, it's it sort of uh, like by around two or three, they'd started and they just got worse. And because the cancer was pretty aggressive, the oncologist really wanted to go hard with that standard first line of treatment. But what I really didn't pick up on, and I should have been sort of, uh, you know, a forceful advocate, was that this, this genetic report that I got said that the drug that was most likely to work was panitumumab, which is uh, it's an EGFR inhibitor and it's a monoclonal antibody. And it's a pretty standard um, drug combined uh, now for maybe a second or third line treatment. But uh, if they'd put me on that panitumumab in that first line setting, I would have had a really good response because I had a great response in the second line setting. And in the first line of treatment, I did that for nearly six months and it just didn't work at all. So all that pain and that torture was basically all for nothing, um, which is, you know, pretty heartbreaking when you think about it. And you said then the words, you know, self-advocating and advocating for yourself. We talk about that at Bowel Cancer Australia all the time. Yep. Can you talk us through then what you did after that? Because you were a little disheartened from what I understand. Yeah. So I did that initial operation and I think it was in June of 2020. And after that, all the detectable cancer in my body was basically gone. But by six months time, that had all grown back and much larger. So instead of the tumors in my liver only being one or two centimeters, the biggest one was now like 13 or 14 centimeters. And there were now like 20 other metastases in the liver. And I thought, oh, I'm just, I'm gone. I'm dead. You know, if this, this just keeps growing this way. And so we actively sold our business um, because I thought, you know, I'd be dead. And, um, but then they switched me on to this um, panitumumab plus um, some irinotecan, but it was, almost all the panitumumab because we tried it with both without the irinotecan and with and the panitumumab was the thing that was doing it and so suddenly that turned around my diagnosis and those even those huge tumors so have some hope people just shrunk almost to nothing so four months later there was almost no cancer detectable in my body again after that treatment which is you know just wonderful but the problem is is that um, the cancer develops resistance and adapts and changes so I knew I only had a short time to sort of try other things to work out you know maybe how, how to get better or manage or cure this thing. Did you change oncologists or did you just stay with them and you self-advocated? It was both so what I did is I got a second oncologist and from then on just kept getting like a second opinion and bouncing ideas off off her um, and that really helped and, and I developed a lot more knowledge by this time and Paula my wife had also been researching but in those first few months you really just don't even know what you don't know. Yeah that's exactly right. So you just need some help you need to find some people or a doctor or 
you know, that have been through it that can really sort of guide you through it. But unfortunately, it's quite siloed. So, uh, you know, so lots of people know a lot about one thing, but there's very few people that know a lot about the entire thing. So, So it makes it difficult. And that's where, you know, making some friends that are suffering the same cancer that are maybe you know, one, two or three years further along the track is, you know, is a great idea as well, I think. And we were talking about that before we started this, uh, Kieran, because you came to me through a lovely lady by the name of Lucy who recommended I chat to you. Yeah, and it really makes a difference, you know, just building a team and getting that support, like, is everything. So then, then what I did was after that, I did that panatumumab and it led to almost no evidence of disease in my body, which is just wonderful. And so I'm like, what am I going to do now to try and cure this or get rid of it? So I looked at all the options around the world, all these sort of famous clinics and that sort of thing, and sort of talked to all the doctors there. And I came up with this dendritic cell therapy that looked really promising at that time. And I made contact with this guy online and, um, he said, oh, yeah, we can arrange this, but it's going to be about 30,000 euros, which seemed a lot. But I thought, well, maybe if it could cure, it might be worthwhile. But, uh, but then I rang the, the clinic in Germany directly and talked to the professor who runs the program. And he was very positive, but he said, oh, yeah, don't, no problems. We can do um, the dendritic um, cell therapy for 6,000 euros. I guess the message is that there's an enormous number of sharks out there in this sort of cancer world. So if you're looking at those alternative treatments, um, be careful of these agents and these other people that, you know, just adding, you know, a lot of margin to things that shouldn't really be there. So so I'm glad I didn't fall into that trap of paying the 30000 to this guy when, you know, the real cost was, you know, obviously a lot lower. Sadly, that didn't work. Uh, but then I went back onto the panatumumab again, and that controlled it again. But you know, I was really desperately aware that the panatumumab would stop at some point and stop working. So, so then I tried a cancer vaccine combined with um, low-dose checkpoint inhibitors, and um, you know, sort of ho- hoping that that would work. But I sort of combined that with um, radiation. Um, I got radiation at um, CyberKnife in Western Australia, which which is really good form of radiation because it's very accurate. So even while you're breathing, it's accurate to within one tenth of a millimeter. Wow! But the idea was to kill a bunch of the cancer, then apply this cancer vaccine, and the cancer vaccine was more likely to see the cancer because there's more of this dead tissue around from the radiation and then um, accelerate or boost the immune system through these checkpoint inhibitors um, at the same time. And so I thought, well, this is a big grand strategy. I hope that works. And sadly, it didn't in the end. I think it sort of maybe helped a little bit, but didn't. And, you know, I think, you know, the message is I, I just tried everything that you could imagine, like, you know, from you know, different supplements and off-label drugs and and that sort of thing. And really, the only thing that has really worked through that process is that panatumumab, which is this second-line monoclonal antibody that is part of the second line of treatment, um, which, is, which is good. So I, I guess the message to people listening is that 
it's worth trying a bunch of this stuff, but um, but the stuff that's most likely to work is the stuff that has the research um, sort of behind it. But the frustrating thing, uh, I think, for you know patients has been that they try the first line of treatment even if they don't know if it's going to work or not? So, Kieran, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a deviation, I suppose, and not only were you going through this with your health, but you had been running a successful business in Canada. How did this diagnosis impact that? You know, uh, the business was one where I was very involved and, you know, it was quite physical and that sort of thing. So it meant that we just, and the treatment was all here and the business was in Canada. So it just meant that we had to sell it. And it was sort of like, a, you know, like selling your fourth child kind of thing because we started it from nothing. And But I, I definitely knew it was the right thing to do. And so we sold that. But it wasn't a simple sale, was it? Because, you know, it, was, it wasn't, was oh, let's put the house up for market and sold, it's done. It involved quite a bit. And obviously your mental capacity, you know, you were focusing on getting well. It, it's surprising actually because you talk about sort of chemo brain and that sort of thing, but, but I really felt my brain was operating really well um, in that period. And I, I think that was just related to, you know, sort of just purpose. Like, uh, you know, I was really desperate to make sure that Paula and the kids were going to be looked after financially because all of our money was really in that business. And um, so we needed to sell it to get it out. And selling a complex business is just difficult at the best of times. And so I, I, I worked incredibly hard on that for quite a few months. And, uh, you know, in some ways, some of the treatment was was a positive because, you know, part of the treatment, they gave me steroids, which I couldn't sleep, which is great because I could just keep working through the night and that sort of thing. So so there was a couple of silver linings there, which is really nice. And you did eventually sell the business. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And, um, so, so that worked out well. Prior to your diagnosis, you live life to the fullest. I know you took your daughter skydiving and then you went off to Europe for Christmas. Can you tell me a little bit about these moments and why it's important to also live in the now? Yeah, it really is. In those first couple of years, I spent like 60 to 90 days in hospital each year. Um, so huge amounts of time. But there's no point in going through all that hardship and you know, torture unless you're just really living your life the rest of the time. So we really made sure to do lots of things. And I found one a good example is like, you know, I tried to go surfing a lot every day. And through that, I would get to the drive down to the little car park to go surfing, which is only like two minutes away, but not far. But I'd often feel so bad that I'd just vomit in the car park and then, you know, not feel great. But then I'd sort of put on my wetsuit and then jump on the board and then just then all that cancer stuff would just leave me and I'd start to feel like a superhero again and, you know, then catching a few waves and that sort of thing. And a few sharks, I believe, at one point. <laughs> you know, more sharks in the last few years than the, than the rest of my life and it, it felt like at times that, you know, death was just stalking me. And, oh. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I got lucky so far, so, so that's nice. So you wrote a book. Yeah which I can imagine was quite cathartic. Why did you want to write a book? 
part of it was that uh, I've got this sort of, you know, uh, need to be busy and doing something kind of thing. And with the cancer where it was at, I just never knew what was coming up next when I'd be in hospital and, you know, uh, suddenly. And and so writing a book seemed like something that I could fit in between things. So it felt like that was something that was achievable and that I could do. But uh, But I really wanted to, you know, leave a lot of lessons that I'd learned, I guess, you know, to my kids and friends and all that sort of stuff. But I didn't want to write like a self-help book because it's just so boring and nobody would remember it. So I just wrote it as a series of stories, essentially, and tried to add some emotional content to that so people would remember it. You know, it's been just really lovely because, uh, you know, the last few months in particular, I've had a lot more pain. And that really does shrink your world like it's harder to get out and like I was in hospital last week for instance and there's probably about a 20% chance of being in hospital in any given week so you don't want to go too far and so what it does is sort of your world sort of contracts but the book has done the opposite in a lot of ways you know it's sort of by getting it out there it's people have really reached out and I've had a like a, a wonderful time you know, chatting with people about it and also, um, you know, just connecting with people that really sort of enjoyed it and that sort of thing. So so it's, it's been a really great process. And um, I finished the audio book last week and I've just put that up as a podcast at the moment. I'll, I'll eventually turn it into an audible thing. But so if anybody wants to listen, it's completely free at the moment. So you just type in growth, truth, adventure, love in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and it'll just pop up. So um, so, so that's a nice thing to do. Fantastic, Kieran. Well, I've read portions of it and one that really touched me was your, I think it's the final chapter, which you dedicate to your beautiful wife, Paula, who's been beside you. Can you share that with our listeners? Because it really, I felt, was incredibly touching. It was the sort of context of it was almost three months ago when I was sort of at that point, I for some reason, I had this incredible pain. And, you know, with the palliative care that I've got, they give me all sorts of drugs, but none of them would touch it. Like, so I had this pain and it was so bad I couldn't sleep. And uh, after, I think about seven days, I thought this can't sort of continue. Um, so I sort of probably at two in the morning, I wrote this this chapter. And it's really, in a lot of ways, a love letter to my wife, but it's also you know, just asking the people that are reading the book and the friends to sort of, you know, really reach out and help Paula um, sort of after I'm gone. So because she's just such a wonderful person and, you know, and, you know, has just helped me so much through this whole process and through my whole life, actually. Um, So, you know, so I've been incredibly lucky. Um, I won't get into the real details of that last chapter because I'll, I'll no, I'll, no, because you need to read that, <laughs> uh, and I'll just start crying on you, and then then we won't have much of a podcast. So, oh, Kieran, I think your authenticity and the way you've spoken to us today so openly, and it it is you, you know it's harrowing, 
but we very much appreciate that you have shared your story and I'd urge anyone to have a listen to that podcast. Finally, Kieran, I'd like to ask my guests to highlight the three key points that they want people to take away from the podcast. What would your three be today? I might cheat a little bit if that's okay. Absolutely. And uh, I would say if you already have cancer, like me, I'd say to people, particularly at the start of the journey, that it's a real marathon, not not a sprint. So, you know, with these early decisions, don't panic. Take a little bit more time to make decisions. The, you know, the cancer's taken quite a long time to grow. So, you know, sometimes you feel like you have to make a decision that day or that night, and it's probably better to just breathe deeply, take a bit more time, maybe get that second opinion, I think is the first thing. The second point is if you have cancer is that it's just a real roller coaster. And emotionally, that's really difficult. And I think there's been probably four or five times where I was sure that I'd hit rock rock bottom and I was sure I was going to die in hospital. But somehow that roller coaster just sort of started to take me back up again. And I got you know, like a contract renewal from someone. So um, so even when you're feeling terrible, you know, still just have that hope because it's, it's happened to me so many times now. And then the third thing is build that network and get those second and third opinions for everything. So that would be my advice, my three things. Kieran, thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege to chat to you today. And as I said before, thank you so much for sharing your story and for also inspiring others to live their life to the fullest as well. I really appreciate it and thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. It was great to spend some time with you. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.